Well, on September the 12th, 2001, I went to the store and I bought a copy of this paper right here. I bought this paper here, which was titled, Our Nation Saw Evil. It's dated Wednesday, September the 12th, 2001. And I read the entire paper. There were numerous stories and articles about the 9-11 attacks. And I remember reading these articles, and then um, after I was done reading, I just took this and I put this back on the shelf uh, in my office, right behind my desk, and just tucked it away. And every now and then, throughout the years, throughout the past 10 years, I would pull it out and I would look at it and I, w- I would just wonder, when are we going to get the person responsible for this? Our nation saw evil. That was September the 12th, 2001. On Monday morning, May the 2nd of this year, uh, I saw the paper and I had gone to bed early Sunday night. I hadn't watched President Obama's address. I just woke up Sunday morning and saw this picture, dead. And there wasn't even a story here on the front page because there wasn't even enough time to get it into the news press and all. And I have to tell you that um, having had this and then having seen this, I felt in, in my spirit just, albeit briefly, a sense of relief and rest and peace and closure. And there's been a lot of conversation going on about how God's people, how Christians should respond to the death of Osama bin Laden. And I'm just... Uh, interested in just telling you briefly uh, where I'm coming from here. And, um, and so here it is. Two words, two words come to my mind to describe this. The first word is grief. Grief over a life that was created in the image of God for the glory of God, but a life that was wasted in the pursuit of satanic human destruction. Grief over a life who chose to use his vast wealth in acts of terrorism versus acts of benevolent care. And grief over people who thought they were following some sacrificial leader, uh, but instead learned that this person died not in some Spartan life existence in a cave in a shootout, but rather this person was perched rather comfortably in a million-dollar complex with a stash of pornography. Grief. The second word I felt is gratitude. Gratitude to God that a wrong was finally made right. Gratitude to God that justice was served in the death of an irredeemable evildoer. And gratitude for the courage of those Navy SEALs who with proper authority in a just cause killed a man who deserved to die. Grief and gratitude. And that is why I felt a sense of relief and rest and peace. 
which is exactly what we see at the conclusion of the Old Testament book of Esther. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. And we're going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9 and 10. In your church Bibles, you'll find Esther chapter 8 and 9 and 10 beginning on page 357. And this amazing story concludes, the story about how a Jewish orphan became queen of the Persian Empire. And along with her guardian, uh, cousin, surrogate father, Mordecai, the two of them saved God's people from the terrorist acts of an evil man named Haman, and the result was peace, relief, rest. And those words, peace, relief, rest, they, they dominate the final chapters of Esther. And so, as we conclude this book, I want us to consider, I want us to consider how God brings his peace to his people, how he does it. I want us to think, secondly, why God brings his peace to his people. And then thirdly, I want us to see where ultimate peace can be found. How and why and where. Beginning in chapter 8. Now, chapters 8 and 9 point out how God brought peace to his people. So, as we begin uh, Esther chapter 8, you know, Haman the terrorist is dead. 8.1 says, that same day, the day of his death, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So for the first time now, Xerxes, the emperor of the Persian kingdom, is now brought up to speed as to how Mordecai and Esther are connected and related in their relationship Verse 2 says, the king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. So Haman is dead. But while Haman is dead, his plan against God's people is not. Haman had manipulated King Xerxes into signing this irrevocable law, allowing God's people to be terrorized and looted on a certain day, which the scripture says was the 13th of Adar, all right? They didn't have January, February, March back then. One of their months was Adar, the 13th day of Adar. Now, the 13th day of Adar was the day before Passover, the Jewish Passover feast. The the Passover was the most important Hebrew holiday commemorating God's deliverance from Egyptian slavery. And so the reader is connecting this story to their past and wondering, is God going to come through again? Is he going to come through in the Persian Empire like he came through against the Egyptian Empire? In chapter 8, verse 3, Esther begs Xerxes to veto the law. Xerxes replies, it's just not our way. It's just not not our custom. We just can't do that. Esther's unsuccessful. But here's what Xerxes offers. In chapter 8, verse 8, Xerxes says, I want you to write another law, another decree, which I will sign off on, and you, you write a decree as you see best to save your people. And so Esther and Mordecai draft a counter-decree in chapter 8, verse 11, 
which the substance of it was to assemble and to protect themselves. So it's a law that Xerxes approves, which allows the Hebrews to act in self-defense against any terrorist attacks. And so what we see in the remainder of chapter 8 is a a point-by-point reversal of the original edict. So you have to go back to chapter 3 and compare it to chapter 8 to see the turning of the tables, the reversals. For instance, the signet ring that Haman had once worn, the signet ring which represented the, the throne, the king, the approval of Xerxes, that signet ring is now on Mordecai's finger. The annihilation edict of chapter 3, verse 12, has been reversed by a second edict, chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. The capital city of Susa, once bewildered at what's going to happen to the Hebrew people, they're bewildered at all of this. Now they experience a reversal resulting in joy in chapter 8, verse 15. Uh, Mordecai, chapter 4, verse 1, in sackcloth and ashes and grief and mourning and wailing. Now, in chapter 8, verse 15, he is dressed in royal robes as the prime minister. So there's this reversal. Chapter 9, verse 1 summarizes... On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. And and now we come to the answer to the question, how does God bring his people peace? He brings his people peace through this dramatic reversal, this dramatic turning of the tables. One night, the machinery of the empire was set against God's people, but the very next morning, the empire supports them, you see. And my prayer is that such a dramatic reversal will occur in our country for the unborn. God's people woke up the next morning and Haman was dead and one of their own, one of their own was prime minister. (laughs) Furthermore, chapter 9, verse 4 says, Mordecai was prominent in the palace and his reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. Is it any wonder that we read in chapter 8, verse 17, that many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them? So who's going to attack God's people now? Well, the attack did come. See, see this means that, that those who actually did terrorize God's people, they were pure evil. Why, why do we put locks uh, on our doors? We put locks on our doors to keep honest people honest. Huh? See, the, 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 the corrupt, they're going to break the door down anyway. See, So what's left after this counter-decree, and after this dramatic reversal, are that the, the, the ones who actually do attack God's people, they are pure evil. And 500 of these terrorists, we are told in chapter 9, were, were killed as God's people defended themselves, including Haman's ten sons. Imagine what, the, what Chicago would look like if 500 of the worst, the worst of the worst, Irredeemable criminals were just taken out. Wow. Well, Xerxes is rather impressed by all of this. He is. Chapter 9, verse 12. The king said to Queen Esther, 
The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Brilliant, he says. Oh, great. And, and, and when Esther, who by now has come, become this steely warrior, she attained permission to do a mop-up job on the second day while the enemies were completely subdued. And the Bible is quick to say, three times the Bible is quick to say, that although the Hebrews were allowed to loot the property of those attacking terrorists, they did not. Chapter 9, verse 10, verses 15 and 16. And furthermore, only men were killed, not women and children, you see. So as a result, God's people had peace, but only because God did so in such a way as to make it dramatically clear that it came from him. You see what's going on here? When God wins for his people, he does so in such a way that it is just so totally clear that it came from him and not from them. And that's why they celebrated and called this celebration Purim. The peace which God secured was remembered through Purim, chapter 9, verse 22, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the, uh, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, their mourning was turned into a day of celebration. Mordecai wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So this feast here is not a victory taunt. It's not a kind of gloating. Rather, it's a celebration of, it's a celebration of, ah, Rest and relief and peace brought by God from the enemy. And some of you have experienced that in your life, haven't you? You have. You've experienced a radical, dramatic reversing of the tables. On Friday night at Celebrate Recovery, I heard such a faith story from a brother in Christ named Johnny Harris. And he talked about how God dramatically transformed his life, and that has resulted in uh, nearly 20 years of sobriety, peace, rest, relief. And some of you have experienced that in other ways as well. You finally got that job. You finally got that break. You finally got that promotion or your lousy Haman-like boss finally retired or was transferred or impaled on a pole or something like that. And, and now you're in a season of peace. And you've been patient and persevering and your night was darkest just before dawn, but dawn has come and you are enjoying Purim. And, you are, and your life is this spontaneous act of praise and celebration. And theirs was. And did you notice here, Purim, this wasn't commanded by God in his law from Moses. It wasn't commanded from the mountaintop down. But rather it came from, from the people upward to God. And the Hebrews heaved a sigh of relief over the defeat of evil. By God, and they said, Well, let's celebrate that, you know? And, and did you notice that how God's people celebrate God's glory is a far cry than how the Persians celebrated Xerxes' glory in chapter one? Remember chapter one and the six month long unofficial? That's how they celebrated it. 
But how do God's people do it here in chapter 9? It's feasting. They had a cookout. That's what they had. A community cookout. They had, uh, they had a food giveaway. They had, and they gave gifts to the poor. That's what they did. But what encourages me most was Mordecai. Because for Mordecai, his was not just a two-day celebration of Purim. Rather, the rest of his life was Purim. The rest of his life. Esther chapter 10 verse 3 summarizes Mordecai's life. This is what the English Standard Version says. For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, which is another word for Xerxes. And he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. And here it is. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That was Mordecai's uh, Purim-driven life for the rest of his life. And this, this leads us to the answer to the second question. How does God give us peace? Through a dramatic reversal of fortune so that we will know beyond any shadow of a doubt that it's come from him. But why does God do this? Why does God give us his peace? And the answer, church family, is God gives us his peace so that we will give his peace. That's why. He gives us his joy so that we will share his joy. He gives us his love so we will share his love. He blesses us so that we will be a blessing. This isn't new to the Bible. This goes all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 12 when God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And through you, all nations will be blessed. So you see, God gives us his peace so that we we will give his peace. Now, is that happening? Is it? Well, that depends on who you are in the story, right? Who are you in this story? I look at these verses on a day like today, I think, what kind of a person am I? What kind of a father am I? What kind of a man am I? Please don't say Haman. His life is summarized by one word. Uh, Haman. Pride. His self-obsessed superiority drove him to assert power over others in the interest of his puny little kingdom of one. And please don't say Xerxes. We haven't really talked much about him, have we? It's interesting. Um, a, a scholar named Michael V. Fox wrote about Xerxes. He says, when you read through the book of Esther and you consider the life of Xerxes, uh, two words describe him. Shallow and lazy. Xerxes is portrayed as a figure who can't decide for himself. You notice that? He always got to have someone telling him what to do. Always. He constantly needs help. He's passive. He's autocratic. He's impulsive. He's, He's addicted to honor. Interestingly, Xerxes never really knows how to say no. He's not a very good leader. He acts, quite, he acts without quite knowing what he's getting himself into, and he never suspects, at least the author doesn't let us see in him, he never suspects that actually he's the one responsible for the annihilation edict because he was the one who signed the law. Well, that leaves us with Mordecai the Jew. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, he's the person. And notice it's, he's called Mordecai the Jew. Several times, Mordecai the Jew. There's a purpose to that. 
And the purpose is this. Mordecai knows who he is. He's not a conflicted person. He serves one God, and he's not going to be intimidated by someone like Haman. And he's willing to hold power in the service of someone else's kingdom. And that is an excellent definition of humility, holding power in the interest of someone else. God. Mordecai shows us that it's possible to be a high-ranking government leader. It's possible to be someone who serves both at the pinnacle of influence and also someone who passionately pursues God's glory and the good of God's people. God gives us his peace so that we will give his peace. So the question is, if God has given me his peace, am I passing it on to others? Am I? You know, when I enter a situation, when I enter a relationship, am I bringing peace with me? Am I to my family, to my marriage, to my job? Can I become the kind of person Mordecai was, someone who who seeks peace and welfare and then who speaks peace into a situation? Am I speaking peace and bringing peace with me into my relationships and my conversations and my phone calls and my emails and my tweets? Am I? Psalm 23, 6 says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. What's following me? What am I leaving in my wake? When you leave the room, what's left behind? Really? Goodness or frustration? Mercy or conflict? Bitterness or peace? And you may say, oh, well, when I get mad, it's like a tornado. It's over in a minute. Yeah, but you know what? Somebody's already cleaning up after you. Am I fighting for peace or just for me? Am I Mordecai or am I, God forbid, like Jehoram of 2 Chronicles 21.20? This was the guy's life. This was it. His life in one verse. Jehoram was 32 years old when he began to reign and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem And he departed with no one's regret. Who are you? Well, the book of Esther ends. It ends on a good note, not a great note. Not a great note. In chapter 10, verse 1, there was a tax increase. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) But it's good. It's it's good that Haman's dead. It's good that God's people have peace. It's good that Mordecai was prime minister. It's good, but it's not great. Because the peace and the rest and the relief was only partial. I mean, Xerxes still presides over a vast empire... That's the purpose of verse 1, to communicate to the reader how vast his empire was. But it's an empire that on the whole has not been radically transformed. And, and later on it would be conquered, right? The Persian Empire would later give way to the Greeks. And the Greeks would later give way to the Romans. And Romans would later give way. And on and on and on it goes. And you know what? Think about it for just a minute here. In our history, in our history over the past 100 years, 
right? What, what, what was at the beginning of uh, the 20th century? The war to end all wars. The war to end all wars. Didn't end all wars, did it? Then there was World War II, the Nazi Holocaust. And then after that, there was the Cold War with the threat of communism. And then when the, you know, the wall finally came down, then, oh, okay, wow. And then this. And you know what? The war on terror will end. And you know what will happen after that? Another war. Why? Because this is a broken, fallen world. And we are left longing for more than just temporary peace, temporary rest. We want true rest. And the book of Esther leaves us longing for true rest that will come from one who seeks peace, but who is not just second in command, but one who is the promised seed of David, one who is the prince of peace. You see, the book of Esther leaves us longing for a greater reversal yet, a a reversal that would result in the coming of the true king whose reign would never end. You see, God's irrevocable decree of death and destruction was countermanded by his decree that those who believe in Christ should not perish but have everlasting life. And the punishment that was due to us for our sins against God and our sins against one another and others' sins against God and their sins against us, why it's been satisfied through the punishment of Christ on the cross, which is why Ephesians 2.14 says, for he himself is our peace. That's Jesus, who has made the two one. The two what? Well, he's made the the Mordecai's and the Haman's into one worshiping community by his death on the cross. Lasting peace would come from a king who would miraculously unite the Haman's and the Mordecai's. Is that possible? Yes, we're here. We're here in Christ. The Hamans and the Mordecais love one another because in Christ we have a different kind of warrior king who unsheathed his sword and he pierced not us but himself on the cross. Like Haman and sons, Christ hung on a tree, the ultimate sign of the curse of God so that we would not have to. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And that's why he's our peace. And furthermore, this peace is a, is a radical reversal because we do not worship the crucified Christ. We worship the crucified and risen Christ. And that's why Jesus says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Jesus Christ, our emperor, through his Holy Spirit in our lives, offers permanent peace and lasting rest. And this frees us and equips us to meet needs with love, to celebrate in worship and to minister and meet the needs of the under-resourced. Don't you see? Every one of our trips and projects from the church community is an extension of Purim. 
is an extension of the peace that Christ has given us. In Christ, every day is Purim. Every day is an opportunity to give peace because we've received this peace. And it's a Purim that allows us to risk. It's a Purim that allows us to say, if I perish, I perish. And what is that for you? Take those cards in your chair. Take them with you. Why can you say that? You can say that because you have the peace of God and you know the end of the story. You already know the end of the story. Christ is our peace and therefore we do not need to survive this earth because Christ has created for us the new heavens and the new earth where we will have eternal peace. He gives us his peace so that we will give his peace. You want to know what that looks like? Two days after she laid her beloved soldier husband to rest, Emma Weaver opened the laptop that her husband had had in Afghanistan, and she was overcome with emotion. Uh, There were two Word documents on the desktop, one called Dear Emma, and the other marked Dear Kylie for the couple's baby daughter. Mrs. Emma Weaver realized that her husband Todd, who was killed in Afghanistan in September of 2011, had written both of his leading ladies goodbye letters in the event of his death. And this is the letter he wrote his baby daughter, Kylie. Dear Kylie, my sweetie, although you may not remember me, I want you to know how very much your daddy loves you. I left for Afghanistan when you were nine months old, and leaving you was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. You're so very special to me, sweetie. You are, you're truly a gift from God. The best day of my life was the day you were born. Every time I saw you smile, my heart would just melt. I am so sorry I will not be able to see you grow up. But remember, your daddy is not gone. I'm in heaven now smiling on you every day. You are so very lucky to have such a wonderful mom to take care of you. Make sure you are good for her and help her out whenever you can. Always remember to say your prayers at night and be thankful for all your many blessings. Never forget how important and special you are to so many people. We love you so very much. And never forget that God knows what is best for you and everything will work out in the end. You have such a bright and beautiful future ahead of you. Have fun, enjoy it. And remember, your daddy will always be proud of you and will always love you. You are and will always be my sweetie. With very much love, your daddy. That's what that looks like. God has given us his peace so that we can give his peace. Would you bow your heads?
And now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And God's people said,